praise be to God. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to be the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word this evening now in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for these most glorious words. And Father, I just pray for the preaching of thy word, O Lord, that you would grant me unction to proclaim thy gospel unto your people, Father. And Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you, you would so attend this, Lord, that your people may be edified, but ultimately, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would be glorified, that we may leave this building that we may leave this building leaping and praising God for great things that you have done. Father, be with us. Holy Spirit, be amongst us. We need thee every hour we need thee. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. This evening, we are going to be looking at the Trinity in salvation. The Trinity, I must admit, is, is something I absolutely love to study. I love how God has revealed himself in, over a period of time in the Holy Scriptures that he is in fact one in his being, yet three in divine persons. Brethren, it pains me in the day that we live to see the lack of sermons on the nature of God in the day we live. As the doctrine of the Trinity is not only essential to our faith, but it is completely unique to Christianity. No other religion claims what we claim about God. Many, many religions claim to be monotheists, the belief that there is but one God. Yet we as Christians are the only ones, while affirming monotheism, yet we proclaim that God has revealed himself in three divine 
persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are co-equal and co-eternal. In fact, brethren, I strongly believe that if we deny the doctrine of the Trinity, the whole of Christianity falls apart. It is the cornerstone of everything we believe. If we are people who deny the Trinity, as I said, we are most to be pitied among men. Some of you may be saying, well, Nick, what do you mean by that? Here is just a short example, brethren. If the doctrine of the Trinity is false, then Jesus, in fact, was not God. And if he was not God, he could not bear the full wrath of God for God's people. Not only that, if the Holy Spirit is not a divine person and just a mere force, then he could not raise Jesus from the dead. And Paul says, if Christ be not raised, we are the most to be pitied among men. Brethren, I say it is drastic as this. Our entire eternity hangs in the doctrine of the Trinity. If the doctrine of the Trinity is false, then the Muslims and the Orthodox Jews are right, saying that we are idolaters but I thanks be to God and I praise his name that he so revealed himself through holy writ that we may be confident to stand firmly on the solid rock that God is in fact one in being and three in divine persons and I also say this brethren the doctrine of the trinity is not a secondary issue hands down it is not a secondary issue you can not be a Christian unless you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And it certainly is not a secondary issue when we are looking at the doctrine of salvation. The salvation of our souls is Trinitarian. I hope that we are not people who think that salvation is just one work of the Godhead. Brethren, God the Father is saviour. In the passage we have just read from verses 3 to 6, Paul is proclaiming how the Father is saviour. God the Son is saviour. Verses 7 to 12, Paul tells us how Jesus, the second person, is saviour. God the Holy Spirit is saviour. And in verses 13 to 14, Paul tells us how the Holy Spirit is saviour. In fact, brethren, the Apostle Paul, in this passage we have just read, with this doctrine in mind of the Trinity, is actually breaking out into worship and adoration of what God has done in the salvation of sinful men and women. And I say this, brethren, this is why theology is not just for the smart academics, but for all of those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. The deeper our study of theology will inevitably lead us into greater doxology. When we look at this doctrine and the work that God has done for vile, wretched sinners like us, we will not be big-headed, puffed-up people, but men and women who have tears in their eyes praising our triune God. Let us not be guilty of so many today neglecting theology as we as Christians are commanded to grow in the knowledge of God. 
Guess what that is? That's theology. The knowledge and the study of who God is. If we are Christ's, then we are theologians by default. Jesus said, did he not, in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So knowing God is essential for salvation. And I say not only that, I truly do believe that having a proper knowledge of the Trinity and salvation will lead us into the greatest heights of the assurance of the love of God for us personally. Understanding the doctrine of the Trinity and salvation unlocks the fullness of our assurance. So neglecting the doctrine of the Trinity is catastrophic for our walk with the Lord. If I was here for a long period of time, I would maybe be here for eight or ten sermons, extracting the richness out of each verse. But I don't have that, so we will only be scratching the surface this evening. My aim this evening is not so much to fill your head with knowledge, but to go away from here, praising our Saviour, praising our God for the great things he has done for wretches like we. So if you are in Christ this evening, knowing more of the Lord's involvement in the salvation of your soul should lead us to a greater love for him and an endeavor to walk with him in holiness, all to the praise and the glory of his great name. So let us delve into this together this evening, brethren. If you're taking notes, my first heading is salvation was God's plan. Salvation was God's plan. Before we go any further, I must for a moment by starts by saying this. If we do not understand that salvation was planned or foreordained, we will inevitably go wrong from there. One of the things that is absolutely right in the modern day churches is the view that salvation is reactive. That God is somehow reacting to us. Salvation in modern day evangelicalism is preached as if God has his hands tied behind his back just waiting for sinners to acknowledge him. The gospel proclaimed today depicts Jesus as some weak beggar and sinners are just breaking his heart as they will not come so he can save them. Let me just say this, brethren. Our God is no weak beggar. The Lord Jesus Christ is not some beggar with his hands tied behind his back. The Lord Jesus Christ is a mighty saviour and the gospel is not a suggestion, it is a command. Our saviour is strong and mighty, not weak. It is because, brethren, the church has so minimalized the sovereignty of God in the modern day, we have made all the focus about you and I instead of the one from whom all praise and honor is due. To start to see the glory of salvation, we must start where the Apostle Paul does, that salvation was God-ordained. We read in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without, without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice the text says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So these churches who say that there's going to be a second blessing, just, you've just had two blessings. Well, my Bible says that we've had every blessing in the heavenly places. And in this passage, Paul starts to give us a real insight into the mind of God. As he has said, he has said, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And those blessings are found in Christ. Friends, I'm sure you're aware. There is no blessings outside of Jesus Christ. God the Father is the one from whom all blessings flow, yet they only, only flow to those who are found in his Son. No Christ, no blessing from God the Father at all. Paul then goes on and tells us something which is absolutely wonderful. He's telling these Ephesians that God the Father, before the foundation of the world, before he uttered the words, let there be light, that he has chosen them to be partakers of this divine salvation. Brethren, the word in Greek literally means to pick out of a bunch. This is no random selection, but an intentional action by the thrice holy God himself. And having chosen, as he says, he has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Theologians call this the redemptive covenant of God. What's that, some of you may ask? What's the redemptive covenant of God? In eternity past, there was a great council in the heavens, and each person of the blessed trinity chose the role that they would take in redemptive history. Within this council, God the Father has chosen a people that would inherit salvation, and these people he has given to his Son, to redeem from the consequences of the fall and the eternal consequences of sin. Some people try to deny this particular doctrine of the redemptive covenant of God as they say there is no place in scripture which says word for word that this event took place. Yet, brethren, if we're going to be people who take the scriptures seriously, we have no choice but to adopt that this event happened in eternity past. Not only do we see it from this passage from the lips of the Apostle Paul, but we also see it from the lips of our blessed Lord himself. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Then he says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And in the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17, we read from the lips of our blessed Lord. He said, he's talking to his father, I have glorified you on the earth and I have finished the work which you have given me. 
So work's been given to Jesus. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. These are just two, just two of many passages that clearly show that before the foundation of the world, there has been an agreement or a covenant between the Father and the Son in respect to salvation. Brethren, remember, the Trinity has always been God the Father, has always been God the Father. God the Son has always been God the Son. God the Holy Spirit has always been God the Holy Spirit. The Son did not become the Son at his incarnation. That was the beginning of his incarnation and his earthly ministry. God has always been from the end, from the beginning. So the Father has chose a people and the Son has been sent accomplishing the task has be, that he has been sent to do, which is to redeem those whom he has been sent to save. Pause. Brethren, this is absolutely wonderful. This should, if you're a Christian, be ringing sweet in your ear this evening. If you're unclear to why, let me just bring this home to you. If you're in Christ this evening, you yourself will know the very plague of your own soul. You will have seen the rebellion which even still to a degree surges within you. And I'm sure you can recount the sins of the past which make us recoil and guilt and shame yet. Yet, my dear brethren, before the foundation of the world, the omniscient, omnipresent God who knows the end from the beginning knew all of your crimes that you were to commit against him. He knows all about each and every single one of our cosmic treason, which demands his holy and just indignation. Yet, with that knowledge, you who are here today, he chose you to be a partaker in this great salvation if you are in Christ. In that great council, before time was, if you are in Christ, your name, yes, your individual name, sounded forth from the very courtrooms of glory. And that's why we can sing in that most glorious hymn, My name is written on his hands. And graven upon his heart. Because he chose you before the foundation of the very world. I seriously, brethren, have no idea why so many Christians would be hostile to this doctrine today. It is beyond me. Friends, this is glorious. This is glorious. We know the plague of our own soul. We know the iniquity, transgression and sin. But God has said, you are mine. And I will choose you and I have chosen you and I will redeem you. Some of you may be saying, well, why did he choose me? Why did he choose me? Was it because what the Arminians said, that God looked down the corridors of time and he foresaw uh, events, so somehow God learned something which is blasphemy? No, no. Was it because of some goodness in you maybe? No. Absolutely not. I can say with absolute certainty that it was nothing 
he saw in you and me. Oh, friends, how that would leave room for boasting. But Romans 8.29 tells us why he chose us. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. The word foreknew is such an intimate word, brethren. Adam knew Eve. It is something glorious. This could be better translated as those whom he foreloved or loved beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you are in Christ this evening, the Father chose you because he loved you before the foundation of the world. That is it. Nothing he saw in you, nothing that we are to be desired, but because he loved you with an everlasting love. It started with him and it will never, ever end with him. And this is why understanding this should leave us with a greater sense of an assurance as when we understand this, we see the great work of salvation never and will never depend on you and me. So why, when we have been saved, will it suddenly start to depend on us and then somehow the Father will give up on us? I'm not saying let us sin that grace may abound. The regenerate heart can never utter such blasphemies. Yet this truth still remains. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God the Father, out of his great love for you and I here this evening, sprung forth this great redemptive plan, choosing the worst that humanity had to offer and set them above cherubims and seraphims. Think on this, brethren. If God would have chosen us and just made us like one of the angels, that is far more grace than which we deserve. We don't deserve any grace. But God not only has made us his servants, but he has chosen us, redeemed us, and made us an heir and joint heirs and adoptive sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a glorious God who is worthy of adoration and praise, brethren. If we just try and contemplate this for a few moments, it will destroy any pride we have in regards to our redemption. I've heard people, when I've explained this, say, I bet this makes you feel really puffed up, doesn't it? I bet it makes you feel so special that God chose you above another. Brethren, if, if you're puffed up this, this evening regarding this, I would examine yourself as this does not puff up. But when we have seen something of who we really are before God, then see that God loved me in spite of me. Oh, brethren, we should be great praisers of his name and be most humble of people. So we have seen the Father's dominant role within salvation. We have seen that he is the author of the redemptive plan, choosing the elect before the foundation of the world. We now move on to the second person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, the second heading is redemption through his blood. Redemption through his blood. We move swiftly along to verse 7 which reads, In him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
Now we come to verses 7 to 12, which describes God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ's role in our salvation. So we have seen how the Father in that great council in heaven has chosen the elect. We now need to acknowledge that our triune God knew that when he had placed Adam and Eve in the garden, that ultimately mankind would fall into sin, consequently needing to be redeemed. Some people may be asking a question, well, if God is sovereign and he determines all things to pass, why did he allow men to fall into such a state? And brethren, we're not actually told directly in scripture. I do, however, have opinions, but I'm not here to preach to you my opinions. So when the word of God is silent, I must be silent as well. But we do know that God is nowhere near surprised by the fall. God ordains all things. This redemptive plan, remember, was before the foundation of the world. So with this knowledge that man would inevitably fall into sin and consequently the whole of Adam's offspring, we as God's elect needed to be redeemed. You and I, brethren, we've not only inherited the sin of Adam, but we all here have totally ruined ourselves in sins and rebellion that we have committed against Almighty God. Friends, I say this, no amount of restitution, no amount of trying to keep the law will satisfy God's holy wrath against our sin. We sang it in that great hymn, Nothing for our sin can atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And this is the great problem. We needed a substitute, brethren. We needed one who was spotless in the eyes of God the Father to be the perfect sacrifice. Not only that, we needed one who could bear the full wrath of God's holy indignation that would have been poured out on God's elect. So this one needed to have infinite worth. The problem is, as we read in Romans 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. We'll all become unprofitable or worthless. And this is why, my friends, God had to take such drastic action. I wonder if we acknowledge how drastic this is. Our salvation, our salvation could come in no other way other than the second person of the blessed trinity taking on human flesh and making himself under the law that he laid down and became obedient to it. The one who flung the stars into space had to be nailed to a tree that he created. Brethren, do we, do we think upon that? That there was a day, there was a day where the Lord Jesus Christ got out of his throne, God the Son, descended down, leaving the realms of glory, humbled himself, making himself under the law which he created, which he laid down, sorry, and then being nailed to a cross. That's how drastic this is, brethren. This is how drastic our salvation is. Jesus being fully God was the only one who had the infinite worth, who could bear, as I said, the full force of his father's wrath against sinners. And because he is fully man, he could perfectly represent us before the throne of grace. And this is why we cannot have any fellowship 
with those who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the Jesus of Scripture, the God-man, can make perfect propitiation for the sins of the people. That's why we read in Hebrews 2.17, it says, In all things he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Lord Jesus Christ, out of his great love for you and I here today, exhausted the full force of his Father's wrath and justice. And why did he do that? Because while we were yet still sinners, God has demonstrated his love towards us, he said. But God has demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. In that great council, before the foundation of the world, God the Son saw every single one of your sins. There was nothing laid upon the sinless Son of God which he did not expect. Each and every single one of your sins here was laid upon him. Yes, and that one that still haunts you at night. Every single one. And before the, before the foundation of the world, John Flavel says in his, in his um, poem, The Father's Bargain, the son said, bring in all thy bills. Bring them all in, Father, that I may see what they owe thee. And he exhausted him. And he knew every one of our crimes. Listen to me, brethren. There are people in the church of Jesus Christ who need to start believing this. Because there are many Christians, living, which I have seen, living under perpetual condemnation over their past sins. Christ paid far too much for you, if you be in him today, for you to live your life miserable over past failures. Again, I'm not saying, let us sin, that grace may abound. If you think I'm saying that, you're not hearing me. I'm saying, Christian, you're free. All your crimes have been dealt with. Each and every one of them. Some of you may be saying, but Nick, I failed him far too many times. Surely I am a lost case. Surely I have gone one step too far. I say this to you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I write to you things that you may not sin. But if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. If you failed him today, never stop going to him. Never stop running to him. For he has said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For he has made perfect propitiation for all of your crimes, brethren. Which leads me to my final point. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. We now come to the third person in the Godhead. The divine person who I believe in the vast majority of Christendom in our day is the most misunderstood. Firstly, I must emphasize the Holy Spirit is a divine person. 
Many upon many talk about the Holy Spirit as if he was just a mere force that comes from the Father and the Son. That is heresy. The Holy Spirit is God himself, the third person of the blessed Godhead. And he is just as much involved in our salvation as the Father and the Son. Remember, brethren, we don't worship three separate gods. We worship one God in three distinct persons. And they all work in complete harmony together. So when we see things in modern day Christendom which turns the Holy Spirit into nothing more than an emotion factory, brethren, we should be deeply concerned at that. Deeply concerned with what we are seeing. The Holy Spirit, he takes a vital role in our salvation. Vital role. As when we go back to that great council that took place before the foundation of the world, he has taken on the role of applying salvation and awaking those who are dead in trespasses and in sins. You see, at the fall, brethren, we did not just become people who sin, but we became by nature sinners. We became sinners to the core. At, man, at the fall, mankind did not just become 50% righteous and 50% sinners. The Bible is clear that we who are born in Adam are completely dead in trespasses and sins. Totally and utterly depraved by nature. And I say it is as drastic as this. Even if the Father and the Son fulfilled their roles within the redemptive plan, without the work of the third person of the Blessed Trinity, we would refuse to even acknowledge the great work done for us. Are we aware of that today, brethren? I know it's, not unpo I know it's unpopular opinion, but we are, born, we are not born sorry, neutral to God. You hear people in our day who say, I'm not against Christianity. I just have no interest in it. Then you start to tell them of the gospel and they start to become angry with you. Why? Because they hate God. The Bible says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And the Bible goes even clearer. It says that they are at enmity with God and God is. Haters. And it is the state of every man and every woman born of natural generation. All are born haters of God with the inclination to rebel against God. And I say it's as drastic as this. Even our dear children here are born in that state. My little boy and my little girl here, they're born. And as much as I love them and I pray for them, they are born fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And unless God redeems them as they get older, if they walk away, they are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's how drastic the total depravity of man is. So friends, I present you with a question and I promise I am nearly finished. If this is the state of every man and woman, how on earth can anyone repent and believe upon Christ? How can anyone repent and place their faith in Jesus for salvation? And this is why I take the stance unapologetically that regeneration precedes faith. Let me repeat that. 
Regeneration precedes faith. A man or a woman must first be born again before he or she can ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who takes out our God-hating hearts and replaces them with one with the law of God written upon them, a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 36 says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. And then I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Notice the word there, cause. This is not something from our own free will. This is something God, by his Holy Spirit, sovereignly is doing. The Holy Spirit must first do something for us before we can have any affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need God to drastically change us. And it's only then, it's only then once we see the refresh eyes, our sin and rebellion, and the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of sin and righteousness. He then reveals to us the cross of Jesus Christ with his arms spread wide for sinners, and we run to him. It is only that, by the third person of the Blessed Trinity, that anyone can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We had an example of this at our church recently. There was a girl called Nicole. She had been coming to church week in and week out. She thought she was a Christian. She professed faith in Jesus Christ. And one day, one day, conviction of sin came. She realized she had no saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. And she got down on her knees and said, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner and God saved her. Let me ask you this. Did she suddenly figure it out because she academic level got better no no it was because God awoken her from her slumber awake O sleeper and sovereignly saved that woman no act of man involved but the blessed grace of our triune God and then when he has revealed Christ to us he comes and dwells in us and seals us for all of eternity Redemption sealed. Brothers and sisters, salvation is a complete work of our triune God. There is no getting around it. The Father is the one who initiates salvation. The Son is the one who comes and accomplishes salvation and pays the price for sinners. And the Holy Spirit is the one who raises us from the dead, indwells us, and throughout our life, conforms us in to the image of Jesus Christ. And this is why we have no fellowship with those who deny the Trinity, as they are preaching a different God. You don't have the Trinity, you don't have the God of Israel. End of story. And also, brethren, if we understand the Trinity in salvation, I have no idea how we can be people who deny the doctrines of grace. No idea. If the, if, if, the Trinity, if the Trinity is not involved in every aspect of our salvation, then the persons of the Godhead are working in disunity together. If the Father has elected a people, then Jesus is somehow trying to save every single person in the world. And the Holy Spirit is trying to apply those that the Father has not elected. We have a God who is 
completely disunified. And God forbid that we say that the God of heaven and earth is disunified. He is one in purpose and one in will. So to wrap up and summarise, I want to leave you with three final comments to ponder after you go home this evening. Number one, this should leave you like the Apostle Paul. Knowing more of God in our salvation should leave us with a greater doxology, a greater wonder and awe at our God. And number two, it should leave you all here with a greater sense of the assurance of the love of God for you. For God loved you before the foundation of the world and he set his love upon you before the foundation of the world and he shall never, ever, ever let you go. Nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hands. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And thirdly, it should encourage you in evangelism. Why? Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life. When the gospel goes forth, Jesus said it will bring in his elect from the four corners of the world. Every time the gospel preached, it is preached with 100% effectiveness and success for his word shall not return void. So be bold for Jesus Christ.